So we've been going through the book of John. Back in John 3, we see a Jesus who walks into the temple and starts messing things up. Jesus' introduction in ministry is to come into the very temple of God and overturn the tables. And so right away, we see that Jesus is confronting power structures in his day. Sometimes we, we get this idea that, that God is just, you know, he's just spiritual. He's just up in heaven. He's just for when you die or you lost your keys or, or whatever, right? And we forget that, no, God is right here, right now, right where you live. He's, he cares about how you're going to make a living. He cares about whether you can eat today. He cares about your body. All right? He could have come as a spirit, right? He didn't. He was fully God, fully human, fully man. He was born of a virgin. God was born. Think about that. He was a baby. He had to learn just like you had to learn how to walk. Fully God and a baby. What is that? All right? That's, that's crazy. All right? That is hard to believe. All right? And that's a huge theme in John. And we read in John, for God so loved the world. He didn't hate the world. He loved the world. He hated the world. He could have got rid of all the bad guys, just like that. All the murderers in Chicago, God could snap his finger. They're all gone. But God loves those guys. God loves those women. God loves you. Even while you are messed up, and God loves me even while I'm messed up. And thank God he does. Thank God he doesn't snap his fingers when we are messing things up and get rid of us. For God so loved the world. And the word for world is cosmos, not people, cosmos. Cosmos means all of it. And so we said God loves the economy and the marketplace and the ecology. He loves the government and education and the culture. He loves all of it. And he sees all of it in bondage to sin. So God sends his son. He gives. He gives. He doesn't hate. He gives. And it's interesting what we start to see right away is Jesus is on this thing called the Born Again Project. What's amazing about this idea of being born again is that God doesn't hate and so destroy. God doesn't hate and so dismantle. God said he loves and so he transforms. Have you ever thought how crazy it is you see a caterpillar one day? It goes into this cocoon and it comes out a butterfly. Now, if I showed you a caterpillar and a butterfly, you look at the two of them, they don't look anything alike. I mean, a caterpillar doesn't even have six legs. You would never say that worm is going to be a butterfly. That is, what it, that is the concept of being born again. What we know is that, that the caterpillar actually becomes like a liquid inside that thing. 
and is completely remade. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and Jesus is doing signs and wonders and the first person that Jesus encounters is a Pharisee. A Pharisee is two things. He's the head of the seminary. He teaches people about God. And he's also the alderman, the congressman, the senator. He is, he is both the religious leader and the government. And that guy comes to Jesus at night. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And so right away we see that Jesus is going to start confronting and start rebirthing every person and every uh, class of that society. See, you can't transform Chicago unless the CEO is transformed, unless the mayor is transformed, unless the police are transformed, unless the guys on the block are transformed, right? We get this, right? It is not one group doesn't get right and we're fine. All the groups have to get right and do right for us to be fine. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, behold the lamb of God that takes away what? The sin of the world. Not just the penalty of sin of the world, but the actual sin itself. Because the sin is what's messing everything up. All right? So God is not just about, I'm going to set you free so you don't have to go to the electric chair. I want to set you so free from sin that you never do the thing again that would have put you in the electric chair and messed everybody else's life up. And so Jesus is on a born-again project. And so he starts with the Pharisee. Then he goes to the Samaritan. The Samaritan is, is, is those people you don't get along with, those people that you discriminate against, whoever that is for you. Maybe it's Republicans, Trump supporters, all right? Maybe it's Antifa. Maybe it's uh, Mexicans. Maybe it's black folk. Maybe it's white folk, all right? Whoever you discriminate against, Jesus goes right to them and lets them be born again. Then he goes to a royal official. So you start walking through John, you see Jesus goes to the Pharisees, religious leaders. He goes to the Samaritan, the people we discriminate against. He calls some Galileans. Those are the, those are the believers from the hood, the believers from the poor neighborhood, all right? He goes and he calls them not the Judeans, not the, the downtown people. He goes out to the outskirts and he calls them to be his disciples. And then we see he heals a royal official's uh, daughter, I believe. And so you see Jesus is reaching into every aspect of society. It's the born again project. And the reason why is Jesus said, you can't put new wine into old wine skins because the old wine skin will break. And wine in the, in the Bible stands for justice and righteousness. Making sure that people in power do not abuse their power and use their power for the good of everybody. That's justice. Righteousness is that we all do what is right. 
And Jesus wants new wine, and he needs new people to have new wine because Jesus wants a new heaven and a new earth. It's the born again project because God so loved all the world, the whole thing. And then we looked at what Jesus was doing when he was doing that. Jesus starts confronting people in their idolatry. To the woman at the well, her idol is men. She's on her seventh or eighth man. She keeps looking for love in all the wrong places. And Jesus comes to her and says, I'm what you're looking for. If you drank from me, you'd have water that always satisfies. You won't be thirsty anymore. You won't be so thirsty, right? We, we say that today. Man, that dude's thirsty. He's trying to get every digit in this place. He's too thirsty, right? He's desperate, right? And, and, and Jesus goes to her source and changes it. And then Jesus breaks the rules of the Pharisees. He comes to a man on the Sabbath, and he's paralyzed, and he says, take up your mat and walk. Now, he could have just said, get up and walk. No problem. But Jesus says, take up your mat and walk. And he knows exactly why he's doing that. Because the rules are you cannot take up a mat and walk with it on the Sabbath. That was the rule the Pharisees had created. You ever been in a place where somebody makes a whole bunch of rules, and after a while you realize this rule isn't about helping anybody. This rule is about proving to all of us that you're the one in charge. Right? I mean, there's rules that make sense, and then there's rules that are like, this is all about your ego. I heard of a pastor who told people which way the toilet paper had to be on the roll. That's how controlling the pastor was. He would say, and if you did it wrong, you'd hear about it. Can you imagine? What was that about? Helping the people? I don't think so. That was about, I'm in charge here. Look, I even get to choose which way the toilet paper on one. Right? Right? That's, that's a little crazy. That's what the Pharisees were on. Their God, their source was their authority. And so Jesus comes and he messes with it right away. He messes with it right away. And then Jesus wanted to confront the source of the masses. The source of the masses was their hunger. The source of the masses was their suffering. When Jesus fed the masses, they said, we're going to make you king. Now, not like we want to follow you because everything you're saying is great, but more, we want to make you our king, put you in our back pocket and have you be a bread machine. Right? If you can meet our need, we will make you king. And Jesus fed them the first time, the second time he confronted them and he said, no, I'm not going to be your king so you can have bread. The bread that you need to have is me. And so we see Jesus confronting their idol, which was their need. And sometimes we do the same thing. Our suffering becomes our need, that place where we're suffering. That one thing we don't have, maybe it's our health, maybe it's our finances, maybe it's you're single and you really want to be married. All these things 
they can become the predominant force in your life. And we start making deals with God. I will follow you if I get this. God is not going to play that. God says, I am God, and beside me there is no other. I am not here for your need to be met. I am the meeting of your need. Right? And it doesn't mean that God doesn't want to feed you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you. But he knows if that comes first, then it's an idol. As soon as you don't have that, you're going to leave him. And if you leave him, you've left the source of life. And you're going to be back where you started again. God loves you enough to be smart about how he answers your prayers. And then we talked about the crowd. We talked about this character, the crowd. And the problem was that the Pharisees were always watching the crowd. And Jesus' brother said, man, if you want to get a crowd, if you want to be a public figure, go to, go to Jerusalem. But Jesus won't do it. And in fact, we saw that Jesus, when the crowd came to him, he would say things to them to thin out the crowd. Because Jesus wasn't here for a crowd. His power wasn't going to come from a crowd. We'll get back to that in a minute. And then we saw this pattern that kept coming up. Anytime Jesus would do something that confronted the Pharisees or confronted the people and their idols, they would always say, why should we listen to you? Who are you to tell us what to do? Who are you to be there with us? And, and you're not the boss of me is basically what they're saying, right? And Jesus would say to them, uh, if you were from God, if you were hearing from God, if you were obeyers of God, you would know who I am. The Pharisees kept asking him, who gives you this authority? And Jesus kept over and over, chapter after chapter after chapter, and it'll go on in the chapters that we're, we're, we're going to follow. Jesus always saying, if you were from God, you would know I'm from God. And last week we talked about Pharaoh and how Pharaoh would not, except the fact that he was not God, right? And the problem is that, that too often those, those people who are fully man are going to die, are weak, are not omniscient, don't know what they're doing, think that they can be fully God and make all the decisions. So you got fully man people thinking they can be fully God. And when the when the one who is fully God and fully man comes to them, they can't hear him because they want to be God. But if they would hear him, then they could become a people that is fully man, but full of God. And in essence, is fully man and doing the work of God on the earth. And then Pastor Jonathan preached an amazing sermon on grace about the woman caught in adultery. And at the end of that story, Jesus says to that woman, woman, who is it that condemns you? And everybody's gone. And the only person that could condemn her, had the right to condemn her, 
Jesus forgives her sins. And I love the way John put this. The best way to keep God's commands is to believe that he loves you even when you don't. The best way to keep God's commands is to believe that he loves you even when you don't. Jesus loved this woman in her sin, delivered her from the consequence of her sin, showed her that he loved her, and so she could be free then to obey him. And that's true for us too. If you are stuck in some sort of sin, if, if you are struggling to obey God in some way, just remember that even while you're sinning, he still loves you. That's how much you can trust him. So today I wanna, I wanna kinda go back to this story of the woman caught in adultery. Because what's real interesting, what we know is in uh, John 8, a lot of uh, this, this, uh, this story about the woman caught in adultery was put later on into this chapter, John 8. And it's, it's really interesting. Sometimes you've got to kind of look at the breadth of Scripture because whoever was the author Right? Like if, if you went and told somebody about what happened today, man, Maria said, or Blake said, Michelle said, what, what happened today? You might all have different stories, right? Um, different impressions, even though you were at the same place. You would choose what parts mattered to you about what happened today. Even the sermon today. No way you remember everything I just said, right? That's why I'm doing the review. I didn't even remember all of that. But I want us to remind, remind ourselves where we've been, all right? And so one thing that when you read, especially the, the Gospels or any part of the Scripture, especially the historical stuff, what you've got to be asking yourself is, why did this author put this story next to this story next to this story? What are they trying to tell us by the way they put these stories together? And this week as I was looking uh, at John 8, I realized that John 8 begins with the story of this woman caught in adultery about to be stoned by the Pharisees, and it ends with Jesus about to be stoned by the Pharisees. What's up with that? And so I, wa I want to kind of take a look at that today. So here's the story. This is the beginning of John 8. I think it's one through eight, maybe. So this woman is brought to Jesus, and the Bible says that, that she was caught in the act of adultery. And so the Pharisees bring her in front of Jesus, and they say, Jesus, what should we do with her? In the law, it says that anyone caught in adultery should be killed. Now, sometimes as Christians, we have this idea that the sacrificial system, if you committed a sin, you just sacrificed an animal, and then your sin was forgiven. That's not true. The, the sins that were forgiven by the sacrificial system were kind of more like pollution sins. They were unintentional sins. Other sins had penalties. 
And if you were caught in adultery, you couldn't go kill an ox. You couldn't go kill an elephant. There was nothing you could kill to get away from the penalty for that sin. The penalty of the sin of adultery was death. Was death. That's in the law. So what is up with this? The Pharisees bring the woman in front of Jesus and they say, it is written in the law. You say you're from the Father. The Father gave us the law. What should be done with this woman? The law says she should be killed. Now, first of all, you got to know this is a complete trap. And Jesus knew this is a complete trap. Because under Roman law, you can't just put people to death. And so this is a complete setup. The Pharisees had trapped this woman, brought her before Jesus. If Jesus says, all right, you got to stone her, that's what the law says, then they're going to go back to the Roman officials and they're going to say, this guy killed a woman without permission from you and have Jesus arrested. See, that's the plan. All right. Now, what is wrong with this story right away? What do we notice is wrong with this story right away? She was caught in the act of adultery. All right? Adultery cannot happen with one person. All right? Adultery is a two-person sin. And yet there is just a woman caught in adultery. Now, maybe they didn't catch the dude. Maybe he ran away. I don't know. But, but it is only the woman there. This is very interesting. What this tells me is just how powerful the Pharisees were. Because they knew it was the act of adultery. There should be two people. They were so sure that they had to write to kill somebody when they wanted to. That they didn't even worry about not having the guy with them. Because this was a group of people that was used to getting away with murder. You see, they, they had a power structure. They had a politics. And I think the Pharisees saw everything from a power dynamic. Everything was politics to them. And in this season, we have to be careful that we're not doing the exact same thing. You see, when you get into a political mindset, everything is just wins and losses. Oh no, they're protesting in the street, Black Lives Matter. That's more of a democratic issue. There's gonna be less people to vote for pro-life. If this continues, we got to say something about it. Never mind if it's, if it's the right thing to say. It's politics. If they win, we lose. You go the other way. Huh? Too many evangelicals are getting involved in the city. What's that going to do to gay people and the rights that they've established in the city? Because they're our enemies. Political calculation. Right? 
when you start to see the world, us versus them all the time, every time them win, you lose. That's the mindset of authority. Only one of us can be in charge. We can't both be in charge. Only one of us can be in charge. So in order for me to be in charge, you have to lose. And once Jesus threw over those tables and started confronting their authority, the Pharisees only saw Jesus as a political rival. And they, they wanted to do what everybody wants to do to their political rivals. Kill him. One way or the other. And if we're not careful, church, we will do the exact same thing. We will come up with what are godly issues. We'll figure out who's on the wrong side of them. And if we're not careful, in our hearts, what we want to do is kill them, destroy them, make them go away. And we become Pharisees with rocks in our hands. And we got to drop the rocks, guys. How in the world can I hate somebody on Facebook because I disagree with their platform? And then teach guys out here who have literally had friends and loved ones and cousins and brothers shot and killed and tell them, you need to forgive those guys. Otherwise, we're going to have a war forever. And I can't even love somebody who's a whatever supporter on Facebook. Church. Jesus looks into the Pharisees' eyes. They've been trying to play this as politics. And he holds up a mirror to them. He changes the paradigm. He says, let's not make this about whether I'm going to win today or you're going to win today. You notice who's in the middle of all this? A, a woman. This is what happens when we start playing politics. We grab people and we just use them as pawns. Someone dies, we don't care about the family. How does it feed into our narrative of our argument? Just a pawn in our game. We have to be careful. She's just a pawn. She is disposable. She is just being used. Jesus sees it for exactly what it is. And I think this is when he, he let his God come out. You know, there's times you look at Jesus, he looks just like me, just like you. I mean, probably not just like, he wasn't white, all right? But he's a person. He's sleeping in the boat while there's a storm. You're looking at him thinking, this guy is just a person, just like me. What can he do? You wake him up, he says, peace, be still. The storm stops. You go, this is not just a man. Every once in a while, in the Gospels, you'll see the God come out of Jesus. And this is a moment where the God comes out of Jesus. How he is in a fight with these Pharisees from the beginning of John to the very end of John. And at this moment, he looks at them and says, you without sin, cast the first stone. And they listen to them. They listen to him. I think the God came out of him. They came under conviction. I also think <laughs> they were looking at the crowd because that's what politicians do. They look at the crowd and they know the crowd is with Jesus because that's what happens when you feed people and you heal them and you cast demons out of them and you give them free medical care and all that kind of stuff and you are teaching with authority. The people are with you and they know you can't mess with the crowd because the crowd is dangerous. The, 
politicians are always watching the crowd. You know, compromised leaders don't care about principles. They only care about their position. And Jesus is about to use that against them because he says, you without sin, you cast the first stone. I think he knows there's a crowd. And I think the crowd knows that they're doing the same thing. The crowd's got dirt on the Pharisees. And the crowd doesn't has, hasn't had a voice to stand up to the murderers. Guys, this landed on me like a ton of bricks. Jesus will not let a group of people get away with murder. Guys, we cannot let murder continue in our city. God is going to raise up a voice against it. And it might be us. And we, we have to stop protecting murderers. We have to. It's a God issue. And Jesus says, you without sin. And I think what he's saying is, if you kill this woman today, and you throw the stone, and you okay it, first of all, you're going to have to answer to the Romans. Second of all, you're going to have to answer to this crowd. Because if this crowd gets any dirt on you, you could be in this woman's spot tomorrow. And I think third of all, he let the God come out of him and the fear of God in that moment confronted them. And that's the reality. People can have moments of clarity where they know they're being called to repentance and walk away from it. And in this moment, they drop the rocks and they leave. Jesus will not let them make this woman disposable. Jesus will not let police officers make black lives disposable. Our police have to be held to account, and they have to be held to account by us. Every life has to matter the same. It shouldn't be if I get shot, there's more police looking into it than a young man from the neighborhood gets shot. And that means we as a neighborhood have to value that life just as much as the social structures would value my life. That's why we got to confront this thing. And I don't know how to do it yet, but I believe God is going to raise up a witness like he did with Jesus in this moment and confront it. And so we already talked about what happened. Jesus says to this woman, who condemns you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and don't sin no more. Because he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Do you see how he did it? Through forgiveness. She came to a deep understanding of what she deserved. And she was mercifully set free from it. We have to contend with that Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. 
So if we've seen Jesus, who is the Father? What is the Father like? See a judge? Only a judge. See only a judge up in heaven looking around at everybody who's destroying his creation and coming up with a plan to destroy them and get rid of them? Blessed is he whose sins you have blotted out, said David, after he committed adultery and God forgave him. He should have been put to death, but God forgave him. That's the heart of the Father. And what is at the heart of that? The heart of that is forgiveness. You deserve to be dead. But I forgive you. Now you forgive those who deserve to be dead. You owed me so much. You messed everything up, right? A lot of forgiveness is about what you owe me because you hurt me. And I want my lick back. Right? And it is hard to give that up. I got to give it to God. God can lick them if he needs to. He can spank them. God knows how to spank people in just the right way for them to feel it in just the right place to have them what sin no more. Right? Because that's what he's after. And so what happens? She leaves. So this leaves us with a question about this new face of God. I thought God was like, adultery, kill him. Idolatry, kill him. Right? That's the law. What's going on here? How can this be the face of God? How can this be the face of God? What is going on here? I mean, we can be so happy for the woman caught in adultery. What about the man's wife who she committed adultery with? Huh? How many have had a, a, a friend whose spouse stepped out on them? All right? Because another person came into that person's life and stole them away. What do you want to do to the person who did the stealing? Huh? Do you want to forgive them? I want to throw some rocks at you, man. Right? You destroyed this family I love, right? That's that woman. Did God not care about that? In the book of Numbers, there's a story about this guy named Phineas. Because I think what we have to, what we have to contend with is, does God care about sin? Right? If every time my son beat up my other son, I was just like, forgive him. Would that be being a loving father? So check this out. This is from Numbers 25, 1 through 10. I just want to say this because I don't want us to take sexual immorality lightly. God doesn't. All right? It destroys lives. And God is, his wrath is against everything that destroys life. Everything that destroys shalom and peace. When, while Israel lived in, in Shittim, that's a great name, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. 
These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So Moab knew that, that Israel had favor with God, so they sent the women in. What's up, brother? They sent the women in to seduce them and get them on God's bad side so God won't take care of them anymore. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. He's talking about like impaling them on a pole and hanging them. Okay, that's not, not like just hanging them from some monkey bars, all right? He's talking about you take the chiefs of the people who are worshiping these gods and you kill them. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Pehor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. The Bible is rated R. Through her belly while they were doing the deed. All right? The beast with two backs got pierced. And look what it says. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Does God take adultery seriously? Does God take sexual immorality seriously? Are we talking about the same God? Are there two different gods? Is God the Father different than Jesus? Is God the Father that the angry part of God? Is God Jekyll and Hyde? Jesus is Dr. Hyde, all right? God, Mr. Jekyll, right? What's going on here? Do you, do you understand? Like, we know, that, we know the way the Pharisees did it, they were playing politics. But if you're just a person, aren't you confused? He just let a woman caught in adultery go. I thought it's not cool to commit adultery. Is it okay to commit adultery now? Is this what God the Father is saying to us? What's going on here? I mean, there was a plague on the land. This guy kills somebody, and the plague disappears. God's like, thank you. That's exactly what I wanted. No more plague. And God does that a couple different times. There's another plague later on where the, the way to end the plague is to kill the sons of the father who broke a treaty and murdered the Gibeonites. And because they do it, the plague goes away. So what is going on? It's a schizophrenic God. He's one, one thing one day and a different thing the other. All right. So historical moment here at Park Community Church. It's the very first time we've ever had a visual object lesson in a church service. Um, it did happen once before, back in the Pastor Ram days, when he uh, 
came with boxing gloves and danced around to the Rocky theme to talk about. I'll never forget that. But this is the first one on our watch. So I'm just going to run through real quick, and I've gone long. But if we go to John 6, and we've been kind of on John 6 for a long time, and it's like God won't let me off of it because John is, he is a poet in the way that he writes. And in some sense, uh, in order to understand John, you got to keep track of all the metaphors. John uses a lot of metaphors, all right? So the, the first I am statement is, I am the bread of life, all right? Well, actually, the first is, I am the living water. And then he says, I am the bread of life. In the next few weeks, we'll be learning about, I am the light of the world. And then after that, he'll say, I am the door, right? And so, so we, we need to stop and take a look at what's going on. But I want you to keep this question in mind. What is going on? With why, why can Jesus let this woman go? Okay. All right. So this is the passage. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat. So they come and they find Jesus. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has sent me. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. All right. So I don't know if we can do a close-up with the iPhone here. All right. But here's the first metaphor Jesus is using for the bread of life is manna. All right. So here's the manna story. All right, we talked about this a, a few weeks ago. The manna story is the people come out of Israel where they've been slaves. All right, they come out of Israel, and all they've been good for was making bricks. That's all Pharaoh cared about them. All right, and when they said they wanted to leave, Pharaoh said, you're going to have to do twice as much work, produce twice as much for me, and I'm not giving you anything extra for it. All right, and so... God brings them out into the wilderness and he's going to do commands with them to, to heal their trauma. They've been traumatized by the empire. And so what he does is he, he gives them bread from heaven. And he gives them three commands. The first command is go out and gather in the morning and no matter how much you gather, you're going to have enough. All right? Now, Pharaoh, a Pharaoh system says you got to produce more than the next person or you won't be taken care of, right? The person who's going to get the most is going to be the one who performs the best, all right? And so they go out and they gather the manna and whoever gathered a little has just enough 
And whoever gathered a lot has just enough. And then God says, whatever you have left over, let it go. Because I'm giving you more tomorrow. You don't even need to worry about it. Is it all you, eat, you can eat buffet? Once you are full, you get to depend on me tomorrow. But on Friday, I'm going to give you twice as much as you need because on Saturday, you get the day off. Remember how Pharaoh made you work twice as hard? On Friday, I'm going to give you twice as much and I'm going to give you the day off. And the Bible says he did this. He gave them this command to test them. And of course, they all kept the manna thinking they weren't going to have enough the next day. It all spoiled, right? Because you couldn't keep it. God, it was a command on training wheels. You couldn't break the command because if you did, it just didn't work for you. You couldn't sneak manna the next day. It was all filled with mold, right? And, and so this is the first metaphor. And it gets right to the heart of economy. Because the idea of it is freely you've been given, now freely give. And God will, will take this command and he will turn it into the year of Jubilee later on, which they're supposed to take care of one another. Everybody is supposed to have enough. Nobody has too little. And nobody has too much. Because that can kill you too, having too much. So that's the first thing. All right? Then later Jesus will say, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now when Jesus says this, okay, so like, Guys, if I had a jersey that said 23 on it, who would you think of? Jordan, right? If I pulled out a rainbow flag, right? We know what that means, right? If I put a red hat on that said, make America great again, right? You would know what it means immediately, right? All right? So when Jesus is talking, he's talking in the cultural narrative of his people, right? If I wore a red hat right now, I'd be making a statement. If I wore a hat that said, make America great again, that would be communicating something to you in shortcut. I wouldn't need to have to sit there and tell you about it. You'd see it and know it, right? So when Jesus says, you look at me, lift it up, he is speaking about this story about a serpent in the wilderness. See, the people complained against God, and so he sent a plague on them. And the plague was that these vipers were biting them and they were going to die. And so Moses interceded for him. And in John 3, 14, Jesus said, Lest the, be, the Son of Man will be lifted up like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And so what Moses did is he took this bronze serpent, and it's where we get this symbol from for medicine. And he put the serpent out where everybody could see it. And if you were out like chopping wood and a serpent came out and bit you, all you had to do was run to within sight of this and take a look at it, and you would be healed. So that's our second metaphor. 
And what are you noticing? What are you looking at? What's up on the pole? Right. So you are looking at your judgment. You see that? The consequence of your sin is up on this pole. Jesus says, um, you will look on the Son of Man and you'll have eternal life. Then Jesus says, this is where he thins out the crowd. Remember he thins out the crowd? He says, unless you eat my flesh, for my flesh, this bread is my flesh. Unless you eat my flesh, you, you won't have my life. Well, right there, he's talking about the Passover lamb. Remember, John said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. All right? So there was a flesh that people ate once a year in remembrance of what? When they came out of slavery. When they came out of Egypt. All right? And so Jesus is pointing them towards this land. And remember, it's a firstborn land that sets free Israel, who's God's firstborn nation, and keeps the firstborn from being killed because Egypt's firstborn is going to be killed. And who was it that was sold into Egypt by his brothers? Joseph, who was the firstborn of Rachel. Right? God, this whole story was putting your firstborn sin in your face. Right? And Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh, right? He's pointing back to that moment. And then he says, and drink my blood. Now this is crazy. This isn't even fair. Because they don't know what that means yet. That hasn't even happened yet. But Jesus, at a Passover supper, the, day before, the, the night before he is crucified, will have the Passover meal with his disciples. And when he gets to the wine, he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. There was an old covenant coming out of Israel, coming out of slavery. Jesus said there's going to be a new covenant. And so let's look what's happening here. I am the bread of life. Freely given. Freely given. You are going to see the consequence of your sin crucified on the cross. Right? Because Jesus is going to be lifted up, not on a pole, but on a cross. And so we see up on that cross, Jesus. He is going to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And his blood brings us into communion with him. Does God not care about sin? No. God deals with sin. He deals, he freely gives us the gift of salvation, not because we deserve it. He puts the consequence of our sin and our sin nature up on that cross, and he puts it to death. He gives us his body and his blood and communion that every time we proclaim it, every time we take of it, we proclaim his death and his resurrection. And get this. This is a kicker for me. 
All through the book of John, Jesus has one main enemy, the Pharisees. And that, that enemy has behind them the Roman Empire. At the end of the book of John, at the end of all the Gospels, what you will see is you will see the Romans and the Pharisees conspire together to put Jesus to death on a Roman cross. Just like when Jesus came, or just like when Moses came to Pharaoh after there was darkness in the land and said, you've got to set us free and we're taking everything with us. And Pharaoh said, no, I'm God. You're not. The next time I see you, you're going to die. But the next time Pharaoh saw them, he died. And the Pharisees are doing the exact same thing. The Pharisees also are denying what God is trying to say to them. They also are in darkness. They also won't give up being God. And that's why they put Jesus to death and get the Romans to do it. But Jesus is not like Moses. Jesus is not like Moses. Jesus on the cross it's not Moses who's leading the people out. He's the actual lamb for the forgiveness of the very people that are putting him to death. And what does he say on the cross? He says the same thing that he said to the woman caught in adultery. Who condemns you? That's what he's saying on the cross. In fact, on the cross, what Jesus says to his father is, Father, forgive them. Forgive who? The Pharisees that are putting him to death. The masses that are putting him to death. The very people that are putting him to death. Jesus does not condemn them. He sets them free. He extends salvation. Extends salvation to them. They are the woman caught in adultery. They were the whole time. And how does Jesus deal with his enemies? How does Jesus deal with those who are in political opposition? He loves them. He dies for them. And he forgives them. And so God will extend the same grace to you. You don't have to be his enemy anymore. And it doesn't matter what you've done. The Romans and the Pharisees killed him. And he still forgave them. He still extended to them the bread of life. That is our message, church.